0: Well, I didn't get as far last week as I wanted to, and I think the reason that was the case was because I tried to tackle too much. So uh, we're going to try to tackle a little bit less tonight in Romans, but I also want to start with uh, a passage from Ezekiel. So if you got your Bible, uh, we're going to start in Ezekiel because we said, as we started this class in Romans, we started with Romans 1 and Romans 1 verses 1 and 2, of course, and we said that what Paul is talking about is that the gospel of God, God's gospel, God's euangelion, God's good news, was promised beforehand through the, through the prophets in the holy scriptures. And so if we're going to understand the gospel as Paul is presenting it, if we're going to understand what we have in Jesus, if we're going to understand the hope that we have and the promises that we have, that we have to see it through the lens of God's prophets in the holy scriptures in what we call the Old Testament the Hebrew scriptures because that is the story that Paul is telling us that Jesus is fulfilling these are the promises that Jesus is fulfilling so I just want to read for you Ezekiel 36 and some of this David I think you're going to have to run it sorry brother Um, some of this, some of these verses are verses that you've, you've read before, probably, uh, but, but maybe not sat down and read the whole thing. And you know me, I always encourage you, go, go read not only Ezekiel 36, but read Ezekiel. So if you're not familiar with Ezekiel, he's a prophet that was a priest and a prophet, and he was exiled, and he was living in Babylon, and it was, when he was exiled, it was before the Jerusalem temple was destroyed. And he knew that things in Jerusalem and things for the Jews were going to get worse before they got better. And as a priest, a lot of the things that he sees deals with the defilement, and then also the future restoration of God's people. And and one of the and it's it's so full of. In fact, it's it's I would say it's probably a PG thirteen book. So we got kids in here. I don't know, but uh, but but it's it's kind of a rough book. Lots of visuals that are very, very, um, uh, just graphic might be the best word for it. And so one of the pictures is Israel as a little girl, like a baby infant. And God finds this baby, this infant, and cleans up this little girl. And then she grows and he clothes her with majesty and royalty. And she becomes this beautiful royal woman. And then she becomes a prostitute with the idols of of the nations but also with the nations themselves in trusting their military strength god says you've defiled yourself with the nations and because you've defiled yourself this is why not only you're going into and have gone into captivity but you will continue to be dispersed and you will continue to be punished but then there's always this message of hope that God will redeem and restore his people so Ezekiel 36 verse 16 the word of the Lord came to me son of man when the house of Israel lived in their own land, they defiled it by their ways and their deeds. Their ways before me were like the uncleanness of a woman in her minstrel impurity. So I poured out my wrath upon them for the blood that they had shed in the land, for the idols with which they had defiled it. And I've said before, you know, that, that when you read the scriptures, you have to under, you have to understand. If you're going to understand the Bible, you've got to understand that the land And the world, the planet Earth, is a character in the story, okay? If you're going to understand from Genesis on, you've got to understand that this is a character in the story. And that when we sin, when we kill each other, and when we sin against God, we not only defile ourselves, but we defile the land. the, The blood of the innocent cries out to God from the dirt, So I poured out my wrath upon them for the blood that they had shed in the land for the idols which with with which they had defiled it. Verse 19, I scattered them among the nations and they were dispersed through the countries in accordance with their ways and their deeds. I judged them. But when they came to the nations, wherever they came, they profaned my holy name in that people said of them. So, picture in your mind God is saying because of your wickedness I mean I loved you I loved you Israel and I I, like your little baby still in her mother's blood in the field and I picked you up and I cleaned you off and I loved you and I clothed you and you became royalty and I loved you and then you became a prostitute and so I dispersed you through the land and as you went into these other countries in which you were dispersed you profaned my holy name in that the people of the other nations said of them, said of Israel, these are the people of the Lord and yet they had to go out of his land? These are the people that are called by Yahweh's name and yet God kicked them out of the land? Verse 21, but I had concern for my holy name. (laughs) It's not very flattering at this point, is it? It's not I had concern for you, but I had concern for my holy name. It's not because you were good, and it's not, and your future restoration isn't based on your goodness, but on what? God's reputation, God's name, that God is a righteous God, God is a holy God, God has concern for his holy name, which the house of Israel had profaned among the nations to which they came. Verse 22, therefore say, therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake. O house of Israel, that I'm about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God. When through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. So somehow through Israel... The holiness of God, the reputation of God, the name of God will be vindicated. Now that's not to say, none of this is to say that God doesn't love Israel or that God doesn't love the people. Of course he does. And as you read through this book and as you read through all of the scriptures, you know that God so loved the world, right? But they have to know, this isn't because you're something special. It's not because you're better than all of the other nations, that I'm going to rescue you and redeem you and restore you and bring you back home and clean you back up and do what I'm going to do. Someday I am going to do something great in you and I will vindicate my name to all of the world, to all of the nations. Verse 24, I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols, I will cleanse you. Verse 26, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I'll put within you. I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Now, if if we're kind of following along and tracking with Paul in the New Testament and we talk about flesh and sarks, Uh, We're talking about a metaphor for being weak, right? But here, he's not using flesh that way. He means soft, right? As opposed to a heart of stone. Your heart is stone. And, and what does the, what is the result of the heart of stone within the people of God? disobedience right hard-heartedness they're not doing what they're supposed to do and over and over and over and over and over again they've broken the law and they've done what they shouldn't have done and they they broke the covenant and God said but someday not only am I going to cleanse you forgive you make atonement again Ezekiel is a priest he's using priestly language and I'm going to I'm going to cleanse you I'm going to make purification for you I'm going to make you right But also, I'm going to take out your hard-heartedness, and I'm going to put a soft heart within you. I'm going to give you a heart transplant. I'm going to change your heart, and so your heart will be soft instead of hard. Verse 27, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Does this remind you of what Paul's talking about, where we left off last week? I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. And I will deliver you from all your uncleanness and I will summon the grain and make it abundant and lay no famine upon you. I'll make the fruit of the tree and the increase of the field abundant that you may never again suffer the disgrace of famine among the nations. Then you'll remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good and you will loathe yourself for your iniquities and your abominations. Verse 32, it is not for your sake that I will act declares the Lord God let that be known to you be ashamed and confounded for your ways O house of Israel thus says the Lord God on that day I cleanse you from all your iniquities I will cause the cities to be inhabited and the waste places shall be rebuilt so every time and again what I'm reading isn't unique just to Ezekiel it's this is the sort of language that all of the prophets use isn't it And so the, the language of when you, when you sin and you, and you do wrong and you defile the land, then there's, there's waste and there's famine. And there's inhabited cities that used to be wonderful and glorious. And people lived and had had families and and prospered and everything was good. And now they're uninhabited. You've ever seen like a post-apocalyptic movie, you know, in New York City. And there's like Times Square and there's like weeds growing up. And, you know, lions roaming through the streets or whatever. You know, there's just, you know, wild animals everywhere. That's the picture that God always gives. But now he's saying that will be reversed. When the Messiah comes and your sins are forgiven and your heart of stone is taken out and a heart of flesh is given to you, a new spirit is put within you, then all of the the curse will be reversed. And where there was desolation and waste, now there will be inhabited cities and there will be prosperity and there will be peace Remember we talked about Isaiah chapter 11 and the way Isaiah puts it is, you know, the, the world, the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord and that like wolves and lambs will lay down together. There'll be peace and prosperity in all the earth. There will be harmony Thus says the Lord God, on that day that I cleanse you from all your iniquities, I will cause the cities to be inhabited and the waste places shall be rebuilt and the land that was desolate shall be tilled instead of being the desolation that it was in the sight of all who passed by. And they will say, listen, they will say this land that was desolate has become like the Garden of Eden and the waste and desolate and ruined cities are now fortified and inhabited. Now, Verse 36, then the nations that are left all around you shall know that I am the Lord. I have rebuilt the ruined places and replanted that that which was desolate. I am the Lord. I have spoken and I will do it. That's, That's everything we're talking about, isn't it? In Romans, I have spoken, I will do it. All throughout the prophets, the promises are so incredibly similar, aren't they? Because of your sin, you're going to be dispersed. In fact, that's what they called, that's what they called the, the nation of Israel, the Jewish nation, was the dispersion, because they weren't in one place, because of the Assyrian captivity and then the Babylonian captivity and the Medo-Persian Empire, the people were scattered all over the world. And God, through the prophets, is saying over and over again, "I will gather you to myself." And your cities that were desolate will be rebuilt. And your fields that that wouldn't grow anything, now they're going to grow crops like you've never seen before. And now where there was nothing but dirt and weeds and thorns, now there's going to be fruit and grain and everything is going to be abundant. Why? Because I'm going to forgive all of your sins. Your sins are gonna be forgiven and you're gonna dwell in the land that I promised to you, right? And all of this is tied around this messianic figure, right? And the, the different prophets talk about the Messiah in different ways, that he's gonna be a David, he's gonna be a branch, he's gonna be, all the prophets talk about him in different ways. Some talk of him like he's a priest, some like he's a prophet, some like he's a king. And Jesus shows up and that's what Paul is saying, isn't it? Yes, yes. He is all of these things, and in him, all of this is coming true. Now, now think about what Ezekiel says, and now listen again to our summary that we've been saying. The next slide there. This is how we've been summarizing Romans 1 through 5. Because of sin, the whole world suffered in slavery under the reign of death. But God, in his righteousness, put forth Jesus as a sin offering so that both Jews and Gentiles might be set free, freely receive full covenant membership, and inherit the world promised to Abraham. Mm -hmm. That is the sort of thing that all of the prophets talk about, isn't it? That is the sort of thing all of the prophets talk about. Now, what, what exactly will that world be like? I don't know, you know? I don't know, but I mean, there's all sorts of pictures and figurative language that describe what it's going to look like. But Paul says, Romans 4, you will inherit this world. Because as a follower of Jesus, you are a descendant of who? Abraham. And as a descendant of Abraham, this world of prosperity and this world of peace, this world, as Ezekiel 36 just said, that's like the Garden of Eden, it's yours, right? The, and I think all the time about the uh, about the the Beatitudes, Matthew chapter five. Jesus says to his followers, "Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth." Right, and all the prophets say this is what the Messiah is going to to bring about. But now we live we live right now in sort of this this time where we're like, what, you know? I mean, it's good, right? I mean, it's good being a Christian and it's good being forgiven. But I mean, the things that Isaiah 11 describes and the things that Ezekiel 36 describe I mean that doesn't always feel like our present reality does it let's keep look at the next uh the next summary verse chapter 6 through 7 we said this in fact I put these together a little bit more under the law man cannot serve God without condemnation because of the sin and death that dwell in our flesh but baptism marks the end of living under the reign of sin and death and the beginning of living under the reign of grace, which results in obedience and sanctification and life. I know that's about the longest run on sins you've ever seen in your life, but I'm trying. You know, so, so that's what happens when we're baptized is we, we sort of, as we talked about, piggyback on Jesus' death. And that's when we enter into the reign of the Messiah under grace but but we're still living in the flesh. And so we still struggle against the flesh, right? And so then in chapter 8, we begin to talk about living by the power of the Spirit of God. So last week, verses 1 through 17, God giving us his Spirit. God giving us his Spirit. And isn't that what Ezekiel 36 talks about? That, that we're going to be given the Spirit of God. Your heart of stone is going to be taken out. And your heart of flesh is going to be put in. And you're going to be given... God's spirit, why? Do you remember what it says? Why why would we be given the spirit? Verse 27, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. This sort of heart transplant and, and spirit infusing, I don't know what the right word would be, you know, put the spirit in you, that this is gonna cause you to be a different kind of a person, right? And that's exactly what Paul is describing, He's saying, under the law, when I was just living by the flesh, I couldn't, as much as I tried, I couldn't do what I was supposed to do. And so, under the law, there was only condemnation. But now, Jesus has set us free from that rat race. And now, I'm free to live by the power of the Spirit of God. Does that mean perfection? No, it doesn't mean perfection. But it means, it means we're getting better, isn't it? And the way he describes it in Galatians 5 is... Love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self control and and all throughout all throughout paul 's writings, he says, "What does it look like to fulfill the law of Christ? Love each other, bear one another 's burdens right so that we 're not doing like we were doing before like god 's people were doing before, killing each other and making a mess of things and entrusting ourselves to idols and world empires and whatever. Our loyalty is to Jesus and our lives are marked by love and joy and peace and patience and kindness. Paul says this is what it looks like to live under the influence led by, empowered by the Spirit of God. And this, this is what was always promised by the prophets that would happen through the Messiah's reign. And that's what Jesus is bringing about in us, isn't it? That's what Jesus is bringing about in us. Now, Let's keep reading in Romans because I really like this next section and I think it's so incredibly important, but I think it's at least it was often overlooked by me. Romans 8 and verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing, are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. I, I forgot to read the rest of it. Could you go back one? I apologize. I got too excited about the spirit. Uh, God giving us his spirit makes us his children and empowers us to live transformed lives in which suffering with Jesus becomes our accepted way of life, right? So Paul says that this these promises are ours and that we will see and experience the glory that is going to be revealed provided we, what? Suffer with Christ. Jesus put it in terms of take up your cross and follow me. That this is what it looks like to, to follow the Messiah, which is totally counterintuitive, isn't it? Like if, if, if you were a Jew living in the first century before Jesus came and you read all of the prophecies about what the Messiah was going to do, that the Messiah was going to fundamentally change the entire world. That the Messiah was going to change Israel for sure, that all of these promises were going to come true to Israel, and that all of the enemies of God will be defeated. You would think, oh man, he's going to have a sword and a spear, he's going to be riding on a big horse, and then we're going to be warriors with him. And is that the way Jesus overcomes the world? No. He overcomes the world by suffering, by giving himself for his enemies, by dying for us by allowing himself to be put to death. And then he says, listen, if you want to inherit the world and you want to be a part of overcoming evil with good, then this is how you do it. You do it by suffering with me, by taking up your cross and following me. That was radical then and it's radical now, isn't it? And the only way that we can truly live that way is if we live spirit-empowered lives. We walk by the spirit and not by the flesh. And so Paul is encouraging us in our suffering. And he says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. So what we're experiencing now is suffering, but what is coming is what? Glory. Glory. Glory, the glory of God revealed, the glory that we will share, that we will be glorified with Jesus, that we will experience it and see it and it will be revealed to us. That's coming. And he says, listen, the weight of what's coming, the weight of what will be, you can't even really compare what you're going through now with what will be. It's so much better and so much bigger that it makes this pale in comparison, right? And and you've experienced that sometimes, haven't you? I, here's an analogy that just popped into my head. If you've ever been on Trek or something like that, I mean, I remember we we I probably could not do a 14,000-foot mountain right now, but when I was 18, I could do that. And so well, we we climbed a 14,000-foot mountain. And I mean, every step of the way, I thought, this is the dumbest thing I've ever done in my whole life. I don't know why anybody talked me into this. I always say I had blisters on my blisters on my blisters on my feet. I mean, it was horrible. I got a new pair of hiking boots and I thought, hey, that's a great idea. Wear a brand new pair of boots. That wasn't a good idea. You know, so it was it was just a horrible experience. I was hungry and I was tired and I was thirsty and my feet hurt and my back hurt and I hated every single step of it. And then I got to the summit. And I was like why didn't I do this a long time ago? I want to do this every day of my life. This is the best place on the face of the earth. This is amazing. Why isn't everybody standing up here, right? I totally forgot every single bad step of the journey. The glory of standing at the mountaintop couldn't even be compared with the pain of climbing it. Not even close. I totally forgot every pain. And I stood up there and I just, I, I'm a big baby, but I just wept. It was just so beautiful and wonderful. And I felt i felt guilty for, for hating every step of the journey. And Paul says that, that, that's what it's going to be like. Don't you understand when when Jesus is revealed in all of his glory and majesty. Don't you understand that all of this suffering, it can't even be compared with what is to come. Now listen to what he says is to come. Verse 19, he says, for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Now, there's some differences of opinion on what this means. The creation waits with eager longing. Some people believe that when Paul says creation, he's talking about people, human beings that aren't Christians. I have a hard time with that. Um, some people argue that, that when he says the, the, cre- the creation, he's talking about creatures, and by creatures, he means people, and that there are other people that whether they know it or not, they're longing for uh, the redemption of God's people, and, and that ultimately, if they don't repent, then their, their longing will be frustrated. But as I read through what Paul's saying here, it doesn't sound like, to me, the kind of longing that will be frustrated but the kind of longing that will be fulfilled. Okay, so, so I, the, I really struggle with seeing that in the text. It sounds more like to me, especially when you take into consideration everything that the Bible has to say about the creation, the planet, and everything that God created. Now, obviously, it's figurative language, the, the planet and the stars and the animals and the trees and the birds. They don't long for... These things they're, they don't, they're not conscious of those things. But all throughout Scripture, the earth is spoken of, personified, as wanting things and, and being defiled by sin, being cursed. The curse didn't just affect human beings. It affected all of creation. And Paul says, the creation, and again, I think he's talking about every created thing. The creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Now again, when the Bible uses the word hope, it's not talking about something that's like wishful thinking. That's how we use the word hope. Like, well, I hope that happens. I don't know, but I hope it happens. That's not how the Bible uses the word hope. Hope means uh, eager, a, a, an expectant anticipation, a confident expectation. I know this is going to happen it ha- but 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 the key to hope is it hasn't happened yet but I know that it will happen and and so Paul says the creation was subjected to futility it was it was cursed right the, the creation was cursed and not willingly but because of him who subjected it in hope in hope what? in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. I mean, just let that sink in for just a second. I mean, again, as you read through the prophets, Ezekiel 36, the land that was desolate, the land that was desolate. When, when God cursed Adam and Eve. When the fall happened. You know it wasn't just Adam and Eve that was cursed. It was now the land is going to have thorns and thistles. And by the sweat of your brow will you till the soil. That it's always, that's always the way. That, that the, the land itself. Is subjected to futility. And cursed. And Paul says. But it won't always be that way. That. Again, as Ezekiel says, this land that was desolate has become like the Garden of Eden. That creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. And so, just like, and Paul's going to say that, in fact, let's just read it. Uh, next verse, 22. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together, the whole creation groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And that's why, again, it's not a frustrated longing. It's a longing that will be fulfilled, just like childbirth. The whole creation Long, groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now and not only the creation but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons the redemption of our bodies see again and i said this i say this all the time i know but but resurrection is where our hope is that see we have a tendency, I think we have a tendency to think I can't wait until my suffering is done right if I'm hurting, then I have a tendency to say I can't wait till my suffering is done or if somebody that I love is suffering I, I say I can't wait till their suffering is done but but Paul helps us and I think all of scripture helps us to see this broader vision I can't wait till all suffering is done yes. see Paul says 1 Corinthians 15 that when Jesus returns and our bodies are raised, like these dead bodies will be raised, that they'll be changed, transformed, so that what is mortal and perishable will become immortal and imperishable in the resurrection, right? That will be, our bodies will be like Jesus' resurrection body. And Paul says here that the entire creation is longing for the same sort of thing. The entire creation is longing. It's like it's in childbirth. It's like it's in pain. All of us, we Christians are groaning because we've got the spirit within us and the entire creation, we're all groaning and it's like that painful march up the mountain. And Paul says, I know right now it hurts, and I know right now they're suffering, but when you reach glory, when glory is revealed, and, and the entire creation is set free from its bondage to corruption, that glory can't compare with the suffering that you're experiencing right now. Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 says, listen, when, when your bodies." are resurrected. When Jesus returns, your bodies are resurrected, then death itself will be destroyed. Right? Death is the last enemy. Revelation 21, the way that, that, that image and vision sees things is that the city of God, the New Jerusalem, comes down out of heaven from, from, it comes down to the earth out of heaven, and then things like death and Hades and evil, and Satan and all of the wicked, all of it cast into a lake of fire. All of it is gone. The way Peter puts it is that when all of this, when the world is judged, then there'll be a new heavens and a new earth, right? So, so Paul helps us to see that we ought to be longing, not just for our own suffering to be done with, not just for our own Sabbath rest, but for, for the end of all suffering for the end of all pain, for the end of all corruption, for the end of all death. It's not enough. It's not enough for me to say, I, I can't wait till I don't have to suffer anymore. I can't wait for me not to have to go through these things anymore. That's good, and that's fine, and Paul even had moments like that, right? I, I'd rather depart and be with the Lord, but, but what we ought to really be longing for and expecting and hoping for is the end of the curse the end of death, the end of suffering, the end of corruption, and the curse, and all of the, all of the decay that goes along with it, all of it to be undone. And again, isn't that what we see in the prophets? And isn't that what Paul is saying, that this is what the Messiah's reign is bringing about? This is what Jesus is bringing about. He is now, and you are the first fruits of that. Your bodies. This flesh, it still needs to be redeemed. And we deal with that every day, don't we? Whether it's coughs or aches or pains or cancers or diseases or death itself, these bodies need to be redeemed. The redemption of our bodies. Not just the getting rid of our bodies. Paul doesn't envision us like getting rid of our bodies like, hey, done with that body, don't need it anymore. But our bodies being redeemed in the resurrection. Changed. No longer in bondage to corruption that's, that's what we're longing for. And the spirit who lives within you and your spirit, we are little bits of the new creation right now, right? We are living under the reign of God through Jesus Christ. And as we live lives of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness, we're bringing about the wolf lying down with the lamb. Even now, aren't we? At least we should be. So that there's peace and harmony amongst the people that have been redeemed. And then eventually, that when Jesus returns and the glory is revealed and all of those things come to fruition. Then all of these things will be true in Christ Jesus. Behold, I make all things new, he says. Verse 24. For in, in this hope we, are, we were saved. Now, hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes for what he sees, but if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. We were saved in this hope. Sometimes, sometimes I think that we we think that right now is, is all there is, right? We live and we die and we go to heaven, and that's it. And Paul says, no, 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 there's more. <laughs> There's more. There's more than just dying in Jesus. That's good. Die in Jesus and your spirit with the Lord and protected and loved. That's good. But there's more. What is coming hasn't been revealed yet. This is a hope. Something that's future, but something in which we can have confident expectation. Not just that one day I'll be done with a body that hurts and aches and gets diseases and dies. Not just me, but that all creation along with me and along with you, all of it longing for the day that all things will be set free and set right. And that good work of setting free and setting right has already begun in you and is lived out every day by you, by the way you treat each other, by the way you treat your neighbor, by the way you treat your enemy, we are living out the reign of God and it is in this hope of what is to come that we are saved and we're living now in anticipation of what we know is true and what will be true on that day. Let's close with a prayer. Most Holy Father, Lord, we, we do not hope for what we see. We do not yet experience or have, or be able to touch what we know will be in the future. And Father, we long for it. And we pray that through cooperation with your Spirit, that you will help us to long for it all the more. That you will help us to be content with sufferings. Help us to be content with mistreatment. Help us to be content with persecution. Because we know, Father that the glory that will be revealed to us cannot be compared with the suffering that we endure now. Help us, Father, to take up our cross and to follow Jesus, to love our neighbor, to love our brothers and our sisters, to love our enemies, as you've shown us to do. Father, we thank you for keeping your promises, and we thank you that we have hope, confident expectation that you will continue to keep your promises in Christ Jesus. And Father, it's in his name we pray, amen.